Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 17 to 23, 26. Hear these words. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus, who must remain in the heavens until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up from your ancestors your own people like a prophet, a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you, and it will be that everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly rooted out of the people. And all of the prophets, as many as have spoken, from Samuel and those after him, also predicted these days. You are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So there is an unwritten rule that sometimes gets passed down to new Methodist preachers coming into the itinerant system, and it is this. Don't go into a church and try to change things right away. Now, depending on who you ask, they're going to tell you that this grace period is so many months, and some will tell you it's that whole first year. But I got my start in Missouri, and the bishop in Missouri was under the exact opposite impression. His thought was, well, you're under a period of grace anyway. You might as well use it. But keep in mind, young pastor, that every church you go to has created its own sacred and holy habits. You might want to learn them, get to know them a little bit before you try to make too many decisions on your own. So, okay, Bishop, got it. I walked into my first appointment and sat everybody down and said, what is this and why do we do it? And you know exactly what happened when I sat the worship committee down and asked them why we worship the way we do. All right, when I asked them questions about the form, the function, the flow of the worship service, they all but accused me right then and there of trying to get rid of everything they held holy and sacred and who they were as a church. But as we had that conversation, two things happened. I learned about some super secret landmines that, truth be told, I, I might have tried to change if left to my own devices, but that I actually grew to appreciate and to see God the way they see God and the way they have chosen to, to structure the, some of the things they have chosen to do in their worship services. And the other thing that happened was that they learned that the new guy coming in and shaking things up might be exactly what they needed. They needed to be reminded why they were doing what they were doing and what it all meant. 
Do you remember that old preacher story about the couple whose wife made the amazing roast, right? It was the best roast in town, the best roast anybody had ever had, ever. Finally, one day, the husband gets curious. He goes to the wife and he says, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want to change anything. It's amazing. I don't, don't touch it. Don't do... But you always cut the ends off of it. Why do you do that? A wife doesn't miss a beat. She said, well, my mom always did it that way, and that's what she taught me to do. Okay. But then that got her to thinking, and she, so she calls up her mother, and she says, hey, mom, don't, don't, don't want to change a thing. Don't, no, no problems, no worries, but why do we cut the ends off of the roast? And without missing a beat, mom said, grandma, right, said, uh, well, that's the way my mom always did it, and that's how she taught me to do it. And this just so happens to be one of those families where great-grandma is still with us, and so wanting to get behind the secret, right, the, the method, the madness, we all go to great-grandma's house, and we're going to ask her why she always cuts the, the ends off of the famous roast. And great-grandma didn't miss a beat. She said, well, it was always too big to fit in the pan. You've likely heard the quote from Christian historian and theologian Yaroslav uh, Polinkin. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I'll give it to you again. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. See, tradition is good. It keeps us grounded to the principles and the practices that came before us. It's a marker of humility. Smarter people than you and I have fought and fought and lived through some stuff in order to hand down a legacy. We ought not be too quick to cast it aside as old and archaic because we don't understand it or because it doesn't fit nice and neat into our box of the present day. Traditionalism is bad. It keeps us locked in that box of the past, never asking questions of how, why, and by what means we got here. We ought not be so quick to, throw, uh, to follow something just because it's the way our ancestors did it, not without realizing when and where they were a product of their time. They did what they did. They made the best with what they had, uh, with all the information they had. They made the decisions with the only information available to them at the time. But history and where history has brought us, given all of that, well, they would probably themselves make different decisions today. Not better, not worse, just different. The trick is being able to discern between tradition and traditionalism. When our traditions are helpful and necessary, they keep us grounded. But at what point do they become traditionalism and therefore a hindrance to our growth? See, unfortunately, it's easy to miss the presence of God right in front of us, even when it comes in bodily form. But it's easier still to let our misconceptions about how God will move be passed down from generation to generation. 
Like you can't read through the Gospels without asking yourselves how they missed it. How did the Sadducees and the Pharisees miss the Messiah standing right in front of them? And I heard something uh, the other day completely blew my mind. It comes from Marty Solomon on the Bayma podcast. If you want to look that up, go ahead. Uh, but he says this. He says, the problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they didn't believe the message. It was that the message didn't change the way they lived. So think about it with me, right? The Pharisees, they, they've spent their entire lives being dedicated to knowing God's law and making sure the people lived it out. And while the Gospels are not shy about how their understanding, about how to apply those traditions, ended up making everything worse, not better, this knowledge that they had also meant that they understood all the subtle little illusions that Jesus is pointing to in his teachings or doing in his miracles. I mean, isn't that precisely why it bothers them so much? Like, here's a guy claiming to do and to say uh, the only things that are reserved for God. But this is not how we expected the Messiah to come. Therefore, Jesus is not God. He must be stopped, if not killed. And so what we see so often in the Gospels is not Jesus correcting the Pharisees' belief or understanding, but Jesus gets on to them for their lack of repentance. Here's the line again. It's a good one. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they didn't believe the message. It was that the message didn't change the way they lived. Our passage this morning opens by saying, friends, I know that you've acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets that the Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God. Why? So that your sins may be wiped out. Why? So that at times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. See, ignorance is rarely the issue with God. God knows that we are human and that we are prone to ignorant wandering. It's why the Bible continually refers to us as sheep, not a compliment. God begins to take issue when we refuse to let our ignorance be moved to repentance. We've forgotten that before Jesus calls anyone to follow me, he first commands them to repent. So at a certain point, we, we can begin to put more faith in the teachings of those who came before us, and we focus so much on what we think we know that we miss what is being revealed. The snares of traditionalism beg us to sit down with each other and ask the question, what are we doing and why are we doing it? It doesn't mean that anything is wrong necessarily, but it reminds us that there's a possibility that something might not be right. And we don't like that, right? I mean, we don't like having to admit to ourselves that there's a possibility that something we might be doing might not be quite right. We've grown so used to, well, that's just how we do things around here. We're scared of what will happen if we start shaking at that foundation. And so we double down and we avoid the conversation. Amen? Good. 
Now let me just lovingly point out to you what you find church people just admitted. You just admitted that your foundation and your comfort is rooted in the way we do church, the way the church operates, and not round, uh, grounded on who operates it. We get scared of our traditions changing, and we can no longer sit down as a faith family and ask each other the hard questions. We have ceased being a church who gets its life force from Jesus Christ. And I think now I've made everybody in the room highly uncomfortable. Good. I know what you're worried about. I know what anxiety is rising up inside of you when I talk this way, but it's also the exact reason that you and I are in this room right now. You're scared that the questions will lead to a loss of familiarity and stability of everything that you know and you love. And you're scared of being out in the cold because that means that the future is unknown and uncertain. But that's exactly how this church was built. Martin Luther was not trying to start the Protestant Reformation. But the Catholic Church had gotten so into itself on certain practices that Luther had a few questions, about 95 of them, say, right? So he wrote them down and he nailed them to the door of the church. John Wesley wasn't trying to start the Methodist movement. In fact, he was adamant, uh, adamantly opposed to the Methodist movement, uh, breaking away from the Church of England. He wasn't trying to start the Methodist Church, right? But he had this Methodist movement. But these Holy Club meetings, they get started because the church was in a rut, not discipling its people like they should. And so without the desire to have these conversations that lead to a deeper faith, there is no Protestant church. There is no Methodist church. There is no Trinity. Not the one that we know and love and raise our families in. In Joshua chapter 4, God is, is getting Joshua ready to take the Israelites to the promised land. And God tells Joshua to gather up all the elders and, and build 12 stones in an altar, make an altar in that place. And then God says, when your children see it, they ask about it, tell them what happened. Tell them who I am. Tell them what God has done in your lives to bring you to this place. The younger generation is supposed to come in and shake at the foundations of the church, not to tear it down, but because it's strong enough to be there after all these years. Rightly understood and practiced, our traditions can keep us grounded in the foundations of our faith. But what traditions are we following? So don't raise your hand for this next part. You're not gonna wanna raise your hand here. I'm gonna embarrass you. How many of you hate, you hate the X-mass instead of Christmas, right? Don't put X, X-mass for Christmas. Don't take Christ out of Christmas. It's an affront to the reason for the season. But do we have the graphic, Kyle? How many of you know this picture? Do we have it somewhere? Maybe, maybe not, the Cairo. 
Is it behind me? Good. There it is. Okay. Now, our brains see a P and an X. All right. But that's the Cairo. That's the first two letters of Jesus' name in the Greek al alphabet. And so that X in the early church became a representation for Christ. And it's all over the place. If you go into the traditional service, it's etched into the altar. It's on some of the stoles that Doug and I wear. But somewhere along the way, the Christian church stopped asking, what is that? Why is it there? And what does it mean? And so we let a tradition from outside the church set into our minds and corrupt our hearts about the things of God. I just spent uh, all weekend in College Station uh, at the annual conference for the Global Methodist Church where I was ordained first a deacon and then an elder. And so, yeah, you can clap for that. That's all right. That's, yay. Uh, all that means is I'm allowed to be in trouble now. Uh, so why, why both? And so going all the way back to the traditions where first you're a deacon and then you're an elder. And so uh, in our particular case, because it's all so new, there were handfuls of us like myself who already met the qualifications for elder and who were already going to go into that, that elder position. Uh, but in keeping with the traditions of the faith, uh, as this settles out, right, the, the people that come after us, they'll be ordained deacon and then after a while, if they so choose, they'll be ordained elder uh, and, and get back to those roots. And so, but for us, it was, all right, you're, you're already in, you're doing that. And so it was deacon, all right, there's your blessing. And then elder, okay, there's your blessing. And so the, the running joke uh, of the conference was, don't think anything horrible or in between the deacon and the elder spot, and you can say you lived a sinless life as a deacon. And I said, don't worry, bishop. You don't have to worry about me thinking anything at all, uh, ever. Those are joke. Thank you. All right. Uh, so it was a, but it was also a conference about getting back to our Wesleyan roots, getting back to, you know, what does it mean to have a foundation as a Christian? And then what does it mean? What does it look like to be a church and a pastorate and a people who live this out through our Wesleyan heritage? And it was a beautiful time and a, it was a really good reminder of who we are and why we're here. The traditions. We can see them played out uh, in our text before us this morning. Okay, so it's, it's uh, Acts 3. And so after Peter and John heal the lame beggar, sitting at the entrance of the temple, Peter's response to the crowd is to launch into a sermon about how their traditionalism caused them to crucify the Messiah. And Peter calls those listening back to that famous quote from Joseph, when he finally gets to confront his brothers from throwing him into a pit, selling him uh, to slave traders, what does he say? Even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing so today. Peter makes his point further by appealing to Moses and everything Moses taught about the prophets that were coming and then the one that would come after him. And then finally, he reminds them that you are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave your ancestors. Even though a literal miracle is right in front of them, 
In order to connect the people to the person and the presence of God, Peter doesn't refer them to the miracle in present day. He takes the crowd all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the original promise and the covenant that started it all. And even though they had acted in ignorance in the worst way possible, he tells them that God still loves them and desires them. He reminds them of who they are and who they were redeemed to be. So I'm becoming increasingly convinced that tradition, rightly understood and practiced, is where we will see a life-changing transformation of the church. Solid foundation is what builds programs. It's the faith in communication, in connection with the cloud of witnesses that has gone before us that will bring the life breath of God into the body of believers who gather in his name. See, the problem in the church wasn't that we got stuck in the past. It was that we never went back far enough. In 1776, that date rings a bell, I don't know. 1776, the Methodists in America reported 65 congregations with a total membership. They're getting it now. 65 congregations with a total membership of 4,921 people. That made up only 2.5% of the nation's church members. By 1850, there were 13,302 Methodist congregations enrolling more than 2.6 million members. It was the largest single denomination. It was 34.2% of all American church members. And it was 14% more than the next largest group, which if memory serves me correct, and it probably doesn't, but I, that might have been the Baptist. I don't know. I joke. Um, although, but what's the math there? That's 74 years. We have church members here that have seen 74 years. Can you imagine seeing the church go from 5,000 members to 2.6 million in your lifetime? And interestingly enough, when the Methodists stopped doing the soul bearing, the life sharing, the banding together, bearing with one another's burdens as they confessed their sins. When they stopped doing that, the Methodist church saw the sharpest decline out of anyone. So after giving it some thought, John Wesley came to this conclusion. You've probably heard this before, but he said, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist in Europe or America but I am afraid, lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this will undoubtedly be the case unless they hold fast to the doctrine, the spirit, and the discipline with which they first set out. If we want our churches to continue growing and thriving, we're gonna have to let something die. And it's either gonna be our traditionalism or our faiths. We can either hold on to that which we think is right because, well, just we've been doing it for so long, 
or we can hold on to Christ who promised to be with us until the end of the age. The church that Christ has built never needed innovation more than it needed transformation. The church doesn't grow because we are up on the latest and greatest techniques, but because we are tied to the traditions of those who handed down a faith worth preserving. But the traditions are there to help us worship. As soon as we start worshiping the traditions, we have built a faith and an assurance on something other than Christ. And that foundation will always fail us when someone starts asking questions. What does it all mean? Why do we do this? Why is it here? But I ask you, like, how else are we going to teach those who come after us if we do not leave markers for them to see and if we do not start telling the story of what God has done throughout our lifetime. And so as somebody who was born, baptized, confirmed, commissioned, and now fully ordained, throwing that in everywhere I can, in and through this church, I've done it all with Trinity. I don't know how many people get to say that. I don't want to take away our traditions but I do want to shake things up just a bit. And I want to take you back to where it all began. And I want to walk with you as we rediscover what it all means. Let's pray. Holy God, you are the God who was, who is, and who is to come. As you enter our hearts and our minds, as you remind us that you have never left us, you have never forsook us, that you are still present with us, remind us of the legacy that has been passed down through the generations and teach us how to tell the story to the ones coming after us, that your word may be the foundation of our hearts, our lives, and our churches. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.